Welcome to Bits of Gold, episode 119. Today's episode is all about delivering value in even the hardest times. Welcome back to another episode of the Bits of Gold podcast. If you're new here, first off, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Second, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. More subscribers help attract more amazing guests to help better serve you with amazing content on how to live with purpose. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Now let's get to it. Life is a whirlwind. In one moment, you could be riding high, celebrating life, a business victory, a birthday, a big life moment, and the next, your whole world crumbling down. Life is random and things happen. It's easy to live your best life when things are going well. When everyone has their health, when your business or career is booming, it's easy to wake up every single day with energy and a zest for life. But it's really hard when life throws you curveballs and you recognize how much of your life is so beyond outside of our control. In those hardest moments of our life, there are rarely words of comfort. You navigate as best as you can and you just try to get through each and every single day. Today my guest is Garrett Ozar, and that's exactly what we're talking about on this episode. Navigating those hard moments coming out on the other side with a desire to impact and help others in the world. Garrett is the co-founder of Eternova. At Eternova, they turn the carbon in someone's ashes or hair into a diamond as a memorial for the family. I actually had his partner, Adele, on about a year ago, and Garrett has his own unique story, so I knew I had to get him on the show. Days after securing a deal on Shark Tank, Garrett found out that his daughter, Everly, was diagnosed with stage 4 glioblastoma, brain cancer at birth. Fortunately, she survived. She turned three years old just a few weeks ago, and today she's three years tumor-free. As a result of what he lived through, he learned a lot in that process about life, about others who are in a similar situation, who need help, and as a result, he decided to do something about it. He founded Foreverly Fulfillment, a 3PL that provides job opportunities for parents of patients at St. Jude Children's Hospital, where Everly was treated. There were so many bits of gold in this one. Early on, I loved how Garrett went about designing a life he truly wanted. He mentions that he made decisions early on in his career as an entrepreneur. He had this early success in a product-based business, but he quickly realized that he wanted to align his professional work with impact. As a result, he decided to sell his business and get very intentional about his life. I think there's really something we can all pull from that, to be intentional with what we want, because we have the power to actually design the life we want, and that's exactly what Garrett did. My second favorite bit of gold was how after navigating treatment with his daughter, He realized there were so many families that had a problem, that their families were torn, being pulled apart as a result of one parent having to go and work while the other parent had to stay with their kid at the St. Jude Hospital. As a result, he decided to do something about it. He created a business that is going to help thousands of families for years to come. It's beyond inspirational to see someone take the hardest moments in their life, to navigate those seas and to come out on the other side and decide to help others, to make the world a better place. That is exactly what Garrett is doing. I'm so excited for this one today. Garrett's story is so amazing. It's inspiring. It's impactful. And now let's welcome Garrett to the show. 
Garrett, welcome to the Bits of Gold podcast. So excited to have you on today. Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited. Let's kick this one off. Maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do. So yeah, I appreciate you having me. I'm the uh, co-founder of Eternova and chief strategy officer. Eternova grows diamonds from cremated remains or hair. The company has been in business since 2017. I also am the co-founder and chairman of the board of Foreverly Fulfillment, which is an e-commerce fulfillment company with two locations, one in Charlotte, one in Memphis, with a focus on giving back to the St. Jude community. And also co-founder and, and on the board of Foreverly Foundation, a nonprofit that provides charity for pediatric cancer, cancer patients and families. Previous founder of AmpCaddy, which was a Bluetooth speaker that was specifically designed for golf. Yeah, so that's a little bit, you know, high level, what I do. You're a busy guy. I know from your background, you had the speaker business before that. You had another few businesses in, in like the sports domain. Mm-hmm. Obviously, now you're, you're really in this, and you might have a better term for it, but you're really in like an impact industry where everything you're doing has impact. I'm curious, what compelled you to sort of make that shift into putting impact first? That was by design. That was definitely by design and by trial and error. As a kid, I came up with ideas left and right. I mean, I had books of ideas. I tried to design a hovercraft when I was in fifth grade <laughs> to revolutionize transportation. And I had like these huge audacious goals uh, and ideas that kind of were always flowing through my mind. And I played baseball, which was a distraction from that. And was able to do that in college, which was wonderful. And after college, I started focusing on, on entrepreneurship. It was kind of a newer term then. And I you know, got involved with a few startups to start. I came up with a few ideas myself. It was tough. You know, I, I basically would go into credit card debt to create a company and you know, it'd fail. And I'd have to completely start over, get a job, basically get myself standing again. And then I'd just repeat, start over and quit my job, start a business and do that. Basically, early on, I was involved with a, um, a co-founder of a company that was creating soft shell head guards for football. I did like the impact and mission there, um, trying to make the sport a little more safe and transitions to AmpCaddy, the Bluetooth speaker for golf. And that was, that was an idea that I came up with because I just started playing golf at that time. Just wanted to be able to take a speaker and mount it onto the golf cart and elevate my experience to be able to listen to music while I played. And, and so it was kind of an idea for myself and liquidated my 401k, maxed out on my credit cards, got a couple of friends to invest and built the website myself, set up the uh, marketing campaign myself, did all the research with figuring out how to create these speakers. Took about a year to figure that out and paid for the first you know thousand units of inventory, which I thought was probably going to last six months. And I launched the website went live and I sold out in nine days. And it was one of those events for me that solidified like I am in the right place. I'm doing what I, what I should be doing, creating things that people want, creating things that are going to add value to, to other people. And it was an emotional moment for me, but it also led into this major epiphany, which is getting to your question uh, on impact, where I realized then and there that I was not passionate about this company. It was a cool product. People liked it and I was proud of it, but it's not something that I was drawn to. I didn't want to have this um, front porch moment when I was 80 years old, you know, and be like, well, I retired early because I, I developed a speaker. It didn't really impact people. 
So I took a step back. Sounds like you know you were having a lot of success. You sold what you said you were expecting in the last six months. You sold out in nine days. Yeah, I mean, literally sold six months of what I thought was inventory. You have no idea when you launch a business and it was gone in nine days. I feel a lot of people who would be in that predicament would say, wow, this is incredible. We have an awesome business here. We have this awesome opportunity. Got to move faster. Need more inventory. You know, your brain can spiral there, especially as an entrepreneur. This is, we hit it. Maybe we found a great product market fit here. Let's double down. How soon did you realize that this isn't something that you're passionate enough about to dedicate the next X years of your life to? I'm talking days. Wow, it was really? days. Yeah. Yeah. I had enough money to cover all the debt I put myself back into. So I was able to like pay myself back for all of that and get myself back to even and then have cash for the business. And I just was at this inflection point. And by the way, like this company was created, it was moonlit. I was literally assembling these speakers all night, every night in a garage, working, you know, 40 to 60 hours a week in my day job. So what happened was is I had that epiphany that it wasn't going to have the impact on me that I wanted. And in that moment, I knew that there'd be a, an entrepreneur that was an e-commerce, you know, that somebody that was tried and true in e-commerce that had built multiple businesses that would look at what I just created and say, yeah, I would take that over for sure. So I just felt like it was a really good time for that. And I had everything that I could hand off. So I sold 80% of the company to a seasoned entrepreneur that had multiple exits and wanted to learn from him, but also wanted to clear my path for something else. It's kind of hard to describe, but you asked a really good question. And it's, it's like the way that it, what happened to me was I basically like proved to myself that I could do it, but I was like, nope, this isn't the right thing. And it gave me confidence to realize like I can go do it again, but I can do it again and point it to something that's going to have more of an impact and something I can be more proud of. What was the driving force internally that made you even recognize or give you the wherewithal to recognize that you wanted to have an impact? Because you know, some people just say, I just want to make the most money I can. I just want to build a cool business. Where was that stemming from? I think that that was a moment of clarity for me in that period of my life that realized that it's not about money. The drive, um, the fire to impact people was way greater than the money piece. And you also need to check the box off of like, am I going to be okay money wise? You know? Yeah. And I feel like I checked the box off of like, I know that I'm going to be okay money wise. And I also know I can do this and I could do it in a more impactful way that is going to have a more profound impact on someone's life. So yeah, that's uh, ultimately, it was an easy decision made and people kind of were like, what are you doing, man? Why? Why did you just walk away from that so soon after creating it? But I knew why and I had my reason and I felt like I didn't have to explain myself to anyone else. What about the financial aspect just around sometimes people get into the feeling that they have these imaginary golden handcuffs on that I can't walk away from this opportunity because the money is too good or I'd, I'd be leaving too much easy money that's sitting right here in front of me. Did you have that or sounds like you made your decision fairly quickly and that you were very clear and decisive around what you wanted, but did that come to mind? No, I, I was single. And my perspective of money is probably a little bit different. I, I didn't grow up with a lot of it. I mean, I grew up in a, had everything I needed growing up, right? And lived in a nice area. But, you know, for me, money has been like, like I just need enough to survive. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, once anything is beyond that, then I'm good. And so the golden handcuff piece of like, how can I walk away from this money? It just it wasn't even a thing. It was not a thing. Mm -mm. So you mentioned at the beginning that you started to build your life with more impact by design. 
I want to highlight the by design piece. How did you go about actually building your life by design? Because that's that's so much of what this podcast is all about. That's so much of what I love to discuss. And I think a lot of people don't actually spend enough time building their life by design. They just sort of are alive and life sort of happens to them as opposed to building the life, as you put it, by design. Yeah. So this is something easy for me to connect with. First of all, I think that a lot of people are lost earlier in the career of figuring out what they want to do. I was too. And I reflected back at my baseball career. And from the age of 16 to 22, I was so laser focused on what it was that I was doing. I was waking up every single morning and doing an additional workout at 5.30 or 6 in the morning on top of whatever our team was doing later that day. And I was motivated to the level of like, I went to bed excited to wake up the next day to work. I woke Mm. up literally the second my alarm went off, I got up and I was like, boom, I'm ready. Like I, I have the goosebumps talking about it because it's such an amazing feeling to have something you're so passionate about. And the reason why I was passionate about it is because I would visualize, let me replace the word visualize, fantasize about standing on the mound of a big league stadium and seeing 35,000 people around me. And I would do that so often that it became visualization. And I didn't realize that's what it was then. It was, I'm literally like <laughs> sitting there like fantasizing, you know, like kids, like kids do where you're in your house and you're pretending to throw a pitch on like, you know, you know, in the World Series. But what I realized is that I created that vision in my head so many times that it was so clear, I could feel it. And what that gave me was line of sight. And so when I had line of sight of where I wanted to go, it made the drive to get there very easy. I didn't have to, there was no question myself. Like I just, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew how to get there and I put everything into it. It didn't happen. I didn't make it, but like, that's not the point. The journey was incredible. It took me to great places, got me through college, which is awesome. And it taught me some amazing lessons. And so I reflected back on that, of that feeling of waking up with energy and realize that the difference between where I was at at that moment with what we're talking about with AmCaddy and the moment when I was in high school and college was that I didn't have a true line of sight with AmCaddy. I was just kind of like, hey, I have an idea. I'm going to go launch it. But I didn't have this end in mind or this goal that I was going towards. And so that's where I stopped and realized, what do I want to do with my life? Like, what, what would I be proud of? What do I want to go accomplish? And I think that a lot of people overestimate what they can do in a year and they underestimate what they can do in 10 years. And so I really started this practice of looking at my life in 10 years and starting to do that same visualization where it almost starts with a fantasy, let it start with a fantasy and then have it become visualization where you could start feeling what your life would be like. You could feel it, you could see it and you get to design it. That's the thing. Like I designed in my head to stand on that mound when I was younger. So I could design what that would look like in 10 years from that point in time. And when I closed my eyes, I realized I wanted to have an impact on people. I wanted to have an impact on a lot of people and like a profound impact, not like, hey, I'm going to make your golf round better, but like, hey, this thing helped change my life somehow. And so that's what I started to gear my mind towards, my ideas towards, my attention towards is like, what are the things that I can put my hands on that are going to truly help change someone's life. Not like 
I don't mean like how Tony Robbins tries to change someone's life in like a moment and like scream at them and, and have them go from <laughs> depression to happiness. I mean, like have an impact on someone that is lasting that they weren't anticipating. Yeah, that's powerful. You know, it sounds like you've always had this ability to to visualize, to fantasize and almost manifest, right? Like almost manifest exactly what you want. I think a lot of people have a tough time even getting to the point where they actually believe that they can design the life of their choosing. I'm just curious if you could speak a little bit to that. And if someone's listening to this, how they can practically apply some of what you did to design your life in their own life. Because I think a lot of people have a tough time even getting to the point of the life in front of me is mine to choose how I want to live. I really don't believe that a lot of people consciously are aware that, yes, you you wake up every single day and make choices in your life and your life's the result of those choices. I was talking about this exact topic with a friend of mine who's basically a co-founder, first employee at a company that's worth four or $5 billion right now. And he and I were talking about this exact topic. And we were at like my wife's friend's house. And this other guy that was we didn't know as well was sitting with us and having a conversation with us. And we started talking about this. And he got so uncomfortable and he just got up and, and walked away. It was mind-blowing to me because the conversation we're having is is just so important for someone like him to have heard and listened to. But it's just, I think, I feel like so many people just don't want to hear it, that they don't believe that they are in control of their own life. And they just like want to shut that down. But if you listen to pretty much anybody that has gone from nothing to created amazing things, become a, an amazing actor, amazing musician, amazing entrepreneur, a major, a major uh, philanthropist, teacher, they worked to get there. They worked hard to get there and they had commitment and they had consistency and they knew what they wanted to go get. And it's, it's interesting because when you hear those people speak, they can have this conversation about like visualizing what it is that you want and designing your life and owning like, you know, and having control of it. I understand completely because a lot of, you know, people around me don't believe that. And so it's one of those things where if, if you believe it, you know, the practical method that you asked for me is, the way that I go about it is simple. I think about where I want to be in 10 years as a human being, like where I want to be living, what I want my family to look like, and what my business landscape looks like, what I've been able to accomplish. And then I actually will create goals off of that. Like, what does that look like? Specific things. What does that look like? That means I want to own 25 businesses. I want to only work six hours a day, max. I want to like, here's the thing. Here's where I want to live. And I'll create that and make it pretty clear, clear enough to where I can fantasize slash visualize it. And then I'll look at how I can create a three-year plan that is going to be a stepping stone to get to that 10-year. And I know that a lot of the stepping stones and a lot of the major milestones are going to be hit between the third and the 10th year, probably mostly like seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th, where like things really start to happen. So when I'm looking at my three-year goal, I'm not creating like these massive goals. I might just have like one of those milestones that's like underway. So it's not something that's is like overwhelming. And then my one year goal that I'll create is like basically accomplish one thing a quarter. That's it. Like one thing every three months just like do that is going to get you moving forward to the direction that you want to go. I think a lot of people might have commitment problems too with like looking at, well, maybe I want to change. Okay. So I look at this every year. My 10 year plan changes every year. Now it's still in very much like the same theme, but it is the practical method for me that I use to 
feel like I'm making progress to getting to where I want to go. Yeah, absolutely. I don't necessarily think that actually achieving the goals that you put out, especially when you're going as far out as 10 years, is as important as just putting you on the road to going some direction. Because, you know, life happens, things happen, your dreams can morph, evolve, take new shape, and all of a sudden, what you thought you wanted in 10 years isn't what you want anymore. Not always, right? But sometimes. But I think the practice of visualizing where you want to be in five years, 10 years, 20 years is very important because it just sets you on that path and enables you to sort of start doing the work very intentionally to get somewhere. It's just the practical guide of purpose, right? Like you're just, it's giving you this ability to know that whatever you're doing, you're, you have purpose in what you're doing because there's an end goal. You're going somewhere. And that somewhere for me was, as we talked about, like being, having a, a true impact on people. But yeah, without that, I feel like when before I had this, I, I was lost. And then to your point, when I implemented this, there's been times where I've actually exceeded. Like 10 years ago, I've, I've exceeded today where I thought I was going to be 10 years ago. But maybe five years ago, I'm way behind where I wanted to be. And I still have time to get there. Like I still have five more years to get to where my plan was five years ago. But the point is, is that if you miss this massive goal, it, one, you're reshaping it all the time. Two, you have purpose in your life. And three, you're still going to see, like you're still going to have success. You're still going to have incredible experience and learning. And you're going to end up in a better place. Like if I didn't have those fantasies of stepping on a big league mound when I was a kid, I would have not had most of my college paid for, for baseball. You know what I mean? Like I didn't make the yeah. major leagues, but I got a college uh, degree out of it, right? I was able to live in six states and play you know, baseball all over the country in Hawaii, Colorado, Minnesota, North Carolina, all these places, I would have never had those opportunities. So I missed, but like, I don't think I failed. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think made your friend so uncomfortable with this conversation around actually having the ability to make choices and choose direction intentionally with your life? Yeah, fixed mindset and growth mindset, right? There are people that have a fixed mindset and there are people that have a growth mindset. And there are people that have a fixed mindset that want to have a growth mindset that person would have mm -hmm. probably hung out there. Someone with a fixed mindset that believes that life happens to them, they might get lucky, but they're not putting their own fate in their own hands. There's this book, it's called Unscripted, that has this really good analogy with this, where it's like, imagine you had a, one of those gumball machines that are clear and you can see the gumballs in there. Yeah. Imagine that like two people have a gumball machine. So each have their own gumball machine. And every day you get to pull one gumball, okay? And they're all blue and there's like one red gumball in each of those machines. And if you get that red gumball, you win a million dollars. The person that is just hoping that they're going to get that red gumball, but not doing anything to put themselves in a better position to have that greater odds to actually win. Maybe they can get a red gumball on their 10th try. Maybe it's their 4,000th try. Maybe they'll never get it. The second person, the analogy is if this person is getting up every day and doing things that are going to be contributing to hitting their goal, they're putting red gumballs every day into the top of the, into the, top of the gumball machine. Mm. And so they're, they're flooding their gumball machine with these red gumballs. Now, they're probably not going to get a red gumball for years because they're all sitting on top. But there's going to be a certain point in time where if they're consistent, if they're consistent over time, that all of a sudden every day, dude, there's going to be a red gumball coming out of that thing every day. And then you have two people <laughs> and that... The other, per the first person is looking at that person and be like, oh, you got lucky. 
No, he put in consistent work over years and years and years and saw failure after failure after failure, blue gumball after blue gumball, even though he was putting in red ones and putting in the work, but with no return. And then all of that comes to fruition, you know, once those red gumballs get to the bottom, right? I love that. Let's jump to Eternova. I actually had the pleasure of interviewing your, your co-founder, but how did you get involved in Eternova? Where'd the idea come about? Take me back to the origin story there. I'm glad that you interviewed her. She's a, definitely a better interview. <laughs> Adele's a, a wonderful speaker. So Adele and I met at an e-commerce uh, company called Big Commerce. It was one of my jobs that I needed to take to get myself out of massive debt for failing a startup. For failing a startup. I was there when I created an AmpCaddy. And so Adele kind of saw that journey that I was on and, and she and I were lock and step with wanting to have an impact on people and create things from, from nothing. So we became friends. We ended up moving in with another person, all like aspiring entrepreneurs into an apartment with the idea of like, we're going to create a business, like making our own little incubator. And we did that for a year. No business really came out of it. And a couple of months after we moved out was where Eternova was born, actually. And um, Adele had the idea of wanting to get into the lab-grown diamond space, which I didn't know much about at all. I wasn't really interested in because of what we talked about earlier. It didn't really align with having a real impact on people, um, like maybe an impact on the environment, but I didn't know enough about that then. So I was kind of not interested. And then one day she came to me and said, hey, I'm going on a trip to South Carolina. I'm visiting a, uh, a lab where they grow diamonds. Do you want to come? And if you're in, you're in. If not, you're not. And I'm totally a yes person. So I was like, yeah, let's do it. We uh, took vacation time at our company that we were working at at the time and went out to South Carolina, um, got to see how diamonds are grown. It was amazing. And over dinner, we were meeting with the scientists and he just casually mentioned to us that you can extract carbon from cremated remains and that there was a company already doing this to be able to grow a diamond from someone's ashes or hair. And Adele had just lost her like friend and mentor to pancreatic cancer and had some, had some of her ashes in a small like box and was already going through the mental exercise of what do I do with these? So she was immediately drawn to it, immediately drawn to it. And for me, when I was reflecting on it, it was like, okay, this is. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Something that's different. It's also not my idea, which is weird, because I'm typically like the person that comes up with, with the, you know, the play. And the more I sat, thought about it, I realized that what we could do as if we were to create this kind of company was we could help 
delay or prevent the second death. So there's like a first death when you pass away. And then there's a second one where people stop thinking about you or talk about talking about you. And I thought it would be pretty profound to help people uh, preserve their loved ones stories. Because if you have something like a diamond, a real diamond, it'll carry that person's story. And someone that is, you know, in the next generation is going to want that, you know, next generation is not going to want definitely the, the generation after that, who doesn't even know that person is definitely not going to have an urn and tell the story of, of this person. And, you know, their story can be gone in a couple generations. So I felt like having that was checking a box for me. And we set out to do this, took us a long time to figure out the supply chain. That was really hard. But then once we finally decided that, hey, yes, we're going to do this, we came up with a compass with, with some principles. Um, and it was all about making sure that if we we're going to do this, we wanted to create a customer experience that our customer never had with any company before. And we wanted to design this with thoughtfulness and make sure we included them in on the process, make sure it's transparent. It takes like nine to 10 months to grow these, to grow these diamonds and create the custom setting and do all of that. So we just wanted to include them in on it so that they knew that, hey, this is my loved one's ashes. This is their diamond. I see this. I'm a part of it. We just wanted to create transparency. Where this really connected with me was we started getting letters and edited videos from customers thanking us. And being in sales for a long time, I've never had customers handwrite me thank you notes. And they were doing this before they received their diamond. They were doing this in the middle of their journey. And they were saying things like, I've never... I never knew I was going to be able to smile again. Like obviously they were, but that's the mindset that they were in, which I'm sure that you can relate to just having such loss that is, is like, you know, the biggest connection in your life. And what Adele and I realized is that what we were really doing for people is not what we thought. It wasn't about the diamond. What it was is that we were giving them something positive to look forward to. We were giving them something positive and bright that was surrounding their most valued connection on this planet. And it was during the deepest, probably darkest time of their life. And so then we shifted and wanted to produce a series of those moments that we can replace deep grief mourning with feelings of anticipation, excitement, inclusion, pride, accomplishment, love, community, all of those things, which when you do it thoughtfully, are going to produce chemical reactions that can elevate one's happiness, right? So Think about that though, because I'm not saying that we can make someone happy that is going through deep grief. But what we could do as a company is create 10, 12, 15 moments that replace that deep mourning with something positive and bright. And that makes an impact on someone's grieving journey. And so that filled my cup. Like, man, how amazing is that for me that it was already in my mind of wanting to do something impactful and, you know, it checked my box, but then it just like, exceeded my expectations of how we can really provide value for families. So we grew the company pretty quickly. Adele and I both have a growth mindset and want to impact a lot of people. And we actually were on Shark Tank in 2019. We filmed that in like June of 2019. It was a big swing for us. Like it was just like a, a very, it's like we had a ton of customers roll through after that because it's not like our business is not one which you just go online and buy a $200 widget and it gets sent to you. Yeah, right? yeah. It's definitely not trans- transactional like that. Yeah, but it was really cool to have someone like Mark Cuban invest a lot of money and, and believe in you. And, and um, it was a, uh, a really cool experience to film. It's definitely awesome to see what you guys are building. I think I showed this when I interviewed Adele, but when my mom was sick, 
my sister's friend came to the hospital and she took my mom's fingerprint and then turned it into a bracelet. It's not like the most beautiful piece of jewelry, but it's definitely one of the things that are most like precious of mine. And when I wear it, it's like I'm carrying a piece of my mom with me. I feel like what you're doing is even one step beyond that, obviously. I mean, I think that we're just ha- trying to help people pave that path forward. We can't walk it for them. They got to walk that path of doing what you're like. You have something of, of meaning. You're carrying your mom around with you. Not everybody does that. Not everybody finds happiness, brightness, positivity through loss. You were able to. And our, our goal is to help elevate that for people. For me, honestly, at this point in time, I, I didn't really have too much experience. I lost one of my really good friends when I was 16 years old. On my 16th birthday, it was just a freak thing. He had an accident in the middle of the night driving his car and it didn't hit me. I was too like, it's weird. I didn't really grieve his loss until 15 to 20 years after he was gone. But up until that, I really didn't experience, I couldn't put my feet in the shoes of our customers fully. And we filmed Shark Tank in June of 2019. My wife was eight months pregnant. And well, actually, as soon as we done, were done filming and I called my brother, it was in LA. I'm, I live in Austin. I'm from LA area. And I called my brother and be like, dude, we got a deal from Mark Cuban. This is amazing. Like, do you want to come like celebrate? And he's like, hey, that's amazing. I'm really proud of you. I love you. And we just lost our son through 22 weeks of pregnancy. And so I was like, shit, that's okay. So I literally went straight from the celebration to his house, which is like an hour drive, spent a couple of days with them. Just seeing the state that they were in was tearing me apart. I don't think I truly understood the impact that losing a pregnancy can have on, on parents. It's kind of, there's a stigma about it. And I think it's kind of opening up now, but yeah, it was just an interesting experience, but they got through and they've had two more beautiful kids. And so I flew home from LA to Austin. Now my wife is two weeks away from having our first child. We get a, and like, you know, Shark Tank is great. So we're like the whole team, we're getting the whole team rallied up about how we're going to, what our plans are and all this stuff. And our doctor calls my wife and says, Hey, I'm going out of town on Friday and you're due on Saturday. It was Wednesday, July 24th. Do you want to come in for an ultrasound? And maybe we can just induce today so that I could be there for your daughter's birth. And my wife was like, yeah, like would have been nice, you know, to know this a couple of weeks ago, but okay. So my wife and I met each other at the, um, at the doctor's office and we're like, I just remember where we were sitting, what we were wearing. We were just like having like very, we were very, I mean, two people in love, very excited. We're laughing and joking with people in the waiting room and we go in and and get the ultrasound and the technician's face just goes white. She can't speak. She tries to speak to us. It doesn't work. She walks out of the room. Doctor comes in, who we've known for a long time, is pacing around the room, mumbling to herself, this is not good. This is not good. So we kind of finally got out that there and she was trying to show us the ultrasound that there was something going on in my daughter's brain, but there was a lot of blood. That's all we knew. So fast forward a couple hours later, my daughter is born via C-section. Luckily, she was stable when she was born. They tried to do a bunch of MRIs. So she was just sedated every day, every day of her life, the first actually couple of weeks. But the MRI was just showing blood. They knew that there was something in there, but there was so much blood that you couldn't see what. So... On her third day of life, this neurosurgeon who, by the way, like got to realize we called a hundred people to figure out who's the best pediatric neurosurgeon on the planet. And fortunately, one of the top two people was in Austin. And I actually used to live in the same building as him. Uh, I didn't know he was a neurosurgeon, a pediatric neurosurgeon. We just saw each other every day and like, kind of like, you know, nodded. 
but he flew home early from a funeral from his like father-in-law's funeral to perform surgery on my three day old daughter who was six pounds and going in blind. So like having to cut her head open and going blind. And he just looked at us and said, our goal, before he went in, he said, our goal, my goal is to just keep her safe. Like my goal is to keep her safe. I got to stop bleeding, keep her safe. So I just remember watching my daughter on a crib be rolled into a surgery room and thinking that that was the last time I was going to see her. And I'm an optimistic person, but that's, I don't know how she's going to survive this, you know? So five hours later, my wife and I were just literally like laying on the ground and just watching the clock. Five hours later, we get news that she's stable. So there is no recovery room when you're a baby. The recovery room is the NICU. So she gets wheeled in directly after her stitches are done. And so she's got this huge scar from the top to her ear. And we see her minutes after she's, the stitches are up. And Dr. George comes in and you know he's got tears in his eyes when he's talking to me. And he said, she's safe. There was a tumor in her brain that was the size of a plum that was causing the bleeding. And I was able to remove most, if not all of it, but it kind of goes deeper. So you can't really get all of it. At that moment, I didn't realize that like the dude just performed a miracle surgery. Like he just blind went in and removed a tumor that took up one third of my daughter's brain space. And she was still alive. And in her left temporal lobe, which is memory, speech, and cognition. I didn't know any of this then, right? But I was wondering, like, why does this guy have tears in his eyes? Like, he accomplished the best possible outcome, right? Like, our best possible outcome there was she's alive. And she has this thing in her head that's gone, and she's no longer bleeding. She's no longer hemorrhaging. But the reason why he had tears in his eyes is because he's done this before and knew that it was, it was nasty cancer. So we got our first, we had our first doctor appointment with a, a neuro-oncologist, pediatric neuro-oncologist, who let us know. Uh, I mean, the first people they introduced us to was the team that was going to help her quality of life. So I didn't even know her diagnosis before we were given the team that was going to help her not be in pain. This moment was the first, like we had the first three pediatric neuro-oncologists tell us that she wasn't going to make it to her first birthday, definitely not going to make it to her second birthday. She was diagnosed with grade four glioblastoma, which is a terminal brain cancer. You were really just thrown into this because like what a whirlwind because, you know. On top. Yeah, you're on top of the world. You just closed the deal with Mark Cuban. You were on Shark Tank. We're talking weeks later. Yeah. What was that like to go from such a high to, I imagine, the lowest low of stress, unknown, all the unknowns that are now thrown on, on your plate? I had to trust Adele and our team. We had like eight employees at the time, maybe 10. And I let them do their thing. So I trusted them to continue carrying you know, the ball forward. And then that was no longer thought. So I wasn't thinking about a turnova at all. I was just thinking about my daughter. And when we talked about line of sight earlier, where it's like, yeah, come up with your line of sight. Like, man, my line of sight was just keeping her alive and finding who on the planet is the best at whatever they do that can give us the best advice. And that's where my focus went. And every day I'd have moments of breaking down and, and having you know moments of, of fear that would come in of, of losing her. And at certain points in time, I realized that like, this has got to be my energy when I have these moments to like, when I have those thoughts that come through my brain to like shift them and say, this is why we need to go find this person. This is why we need to go do this. There's a purpose behind this. And so my wife and I went into the mode of like, we're going to figure this out. We are going to the end of the earth. Even if we fail, we are going to do everything we possibly can to figure this out for our daughter. 
taking that approach, it was a lot of phone calls, uh, a lot of networking, a lot of leveraging relationships. And I mean, using a lot of the same practices we use as an entrepreneur, right? When you're creating a business, it's like, you got to figure something out from the ground up. We knew nothing about this industry, nothing about pediatric cancer, nothing about brain tumors, literally nothing. And we're learning all of this really quickly and then trying to figure out and isolate who on the planet is the best person to talk to. And one of those people were at this children's hospital, I'll, let, I'll leave it unnamed, that like the best diagnosis we got, the best plan was that they were going to put her on chemo for two years until her body gave out. So basically like she'd be mentally not there and she'd have like a 20% chance to make it to her second birthday. That was the best news we'd heard. And that was from like one of the top people. And we were driving home different cities, so a long drive. And it was like Thursday night, 9.30 at night, my phone rings and it's the number one person that we were trying to get to, his name is Dr. Gajar. He's at St. Jude Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. Literally like the world's authority on pediatric brain cancer. Dr. Gajar called me and just said, listen, I don't care what anybody else has told you. I'm going to save your daughter. So come to Memphis. And it was 9.30 at night. We're a couple hours away from home. We left the next morning at 6 o'clock in the morning to drive to Memphis to go to St. Jude Children's Hospital. What's that like as a parent, but also you're trying to make the best decision based on the data you have. But doctors, just as any other person, whether it's business or medical, people have different opinions of what's right, what's not right, what's the best decision. What was that piece for you like? I mean, you're talking to doctors that were really had a lot of confidence in their statements to you. You know, they're telling us with confidence that she wasn't going to make it, telling us confidence that you know this was a nasty cancer and and there's not many ways to treat it or there's no ways to really treat it because it's so rare. It's hard because you know that they know way more than you. But when it's something that you don't want to hear, it's easy to not trust even somebody that's got the highest level of confidence with that. And to me, it was more of like, I want to figure out who legitimately is the world's authority on this. Who's the best on the planet with this? I want to talk to that person and hear what they have to say. And getting to that person, you know, was hard. But fortunately, we're able to do that. What happened next? Yeah. So got to Memphis. Like there's a couple days between the time we're supposed to start chemotherapy and St. Jude's is like wonderful place. Like somehow, some way, there's 1,500 patients at any given time going through cancer treatment, but it's like somehow still bright and positive in this hospital. It's unreal. And maybe spend a day or two kind of delegating some work stuff, you know, with a turnover to try to get more things off my plate. Anything I was in the weeds on, I was trying to offload. And then I went back to my daughter and... She went through six rounds of, of very aggressive chemo treatment. She ended up finishing chemo by the time she was eight months old. And we were able to basically be home full time come February of, of 2020. So that was like, we literally got home and we were in this bubble because you can't let your kid be around anyone when they're going through chemo and they don't have an immune system to start because babies don't have immune systems. So we were already in a bubble and we got home. We're like, we can go to a restaurant again. And then COVID started. And so, you know, we are, it's kind of like, we were like, yeah, let's just continue our routine. We're good. And got home and, and she, you know, was recovering. Um, she was starting to become a human. I mean, she basically, her whole life was going through chemotherapy at this time. She started when she was five weeks old. Five weeks to eight months was literally chemo being injected into a baby, like aggressive chemo. So, you know, the tumor had shown no signs of regrowth, which is huge. That's the most important thing. And um, she was doing wonderfully. And by the way, I should have probably led with this because I think you know that, or you know this, but someone listening wouldn't. Everly turned three years old last week. Amazing. Happy birthday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She turned three years old 
three years tumor free, right? She had that surgery when she was three days old and is just like this incredible, incredible person that, you know, we get to go to St. Jude. Um, we get to go to St. Jude to get her scans, you know, to make sure that all is good and the tumor is not coming back. We go next week, actually. But when we go, this little girl, first of all, she doesn't have a left temporal lobe, which is memory, speech, and cognition. And she is like, memorized a million songs, uh, can tell you every planet by looking at them, was able to do that before she was two years old. Just a remarkable little girl that loves people and just goes up and starts talking to patients and talking to families. And just they like turn and look at her and they ask me, you know, is she someone, is she a sister or is she like, well, who is she? I'm like, no, <laughs> she's actually, she went through what you guys are going through. You know, she went through treatment and now she's on the other side. And a lot of these parents might be at the very beginning of their journey with their child of going through pediatric cancer. And you don't have a lot of hope because you don't see kids that make it through the other side all the time. And there she is stomping around with a huge smile on her face. And when they find out that, you know, how aggressive what she had, which is so rare, I could just see that it lights them up, with gives them hope. And she has more of an impact on people than I ever have my whole life. And then she, every time she goes, that's what she does. So special kid. That's amazing. I'm curious from your perspective, is there anything that you learned about yourself or that shifted your perspective on life or living now looking back on, on your experience? Um, 100%. Absolutely. Every day I get up with Everly and I walk up the stairs to a room and I have this like awesome moment of reflection of visualizing that moment of her crib going into that surgery room. and it puts me through this like instantaneous almost meditation where it's, it's not like a 10 minute meditation. It's like a, a literally less than a second, but it's like a overwhelming boom sense of gratitude that I get to be going up the stairs right now to wake up my daughter. And that's such an amazing way to wake up every single day to like start your day. And it creates perspective and I wouldn't change a single thing, honestly. And I say that as long as my daughter, you know, continues on her path, which there's no reason why she should and she's going to live a long, beautiful life. But I wouldn't change a thing because it's the impact she's having on people, uh, the hope that she's giving people. Like a lot of people don't continue to treat with this cancer. They'll see her and, and do it, right? So she's going to save lives. It's definitely helped me have perspective and understand how delicate and short life is. While we were at St. Jude, I want to talk about foreverly fulfillment real quick. While we were at St. Jude, St. Jude is, again, 1,500 families are there. They're from all over the country, mostly. Some of them are from other countries. And we had a really good friend that was there that was so involved with his daughter's care that like, it made me feel ashamed because I felt like I should be knowing what kind of category this particular chemo was and what the, how, how the biology worked with it. He knew all of that. Like I had no clue. And he texted us one day and said he had to go home. So he left his wife and his daughter to, um, to go home to work. He had to work. He had to continue working. They were there for like three years. Wow. And that broke our heart seeing that and then found out that that's very common, that one of the parents have to go home to work. And so my wife and I were doing that 10-year goal that we started talking about earlier. We're like, hey, you know, what, what are we going to do? It was January 1st. We were doing our goals and what do we want to do in 10 years? And we're like, hey, let's impact. Let's have a massive impact on a thousand families that are going through pediatric cancer in the next 10 years. And that was one of our targets. And so, you know, I was reflecting on it on the drive back. We've done 25 round trip drives from Memphis to Austin. I was reflecting on it on the way back and, and, you know, thinking about what I could do to get this started and realize like, I know how to create 
value for people. I know how to create jobs. I have a background in e-commerce and I thought about how we can potentially create an e-commerce fulfillment center that would provide parents of St. Jude with jobs so they could stay in Memphis and have something that's like meaningful to do, but also mindless. So they're not having to like, you know, have conversations with people because man, when you're going through that, the smallest thing can set you off. Trust me. Yeah. And so I remembered that a friend of mine, her dad had been doing e-commerce fulfillment for like 30 years, like before Amazon was a thing. He'd been in this space and I called him and started picking his brain and telling him like, you know, I'm thinking about wanting to do this in a couple of years. And he basically, over the course of a couple months of just like chatting with him, he said like, I want to do this with you. And basically I brought in another buddy of mine, Ty Muller, who's got his MBA and has helped me with a few startups to run this business. And basically we acquired this fulfillment center that was already in existence with a ton of experience, a ton of technology and a location that was up and running in Charlotte and then moved one to Memphis. And I'm just on the board, so I I don't work in the day-to-day, but essentially the company provides parents of St. Jude with jobs, flexible jobs. They can work three hours, 40 hours. If they need to go home, they can go home. Um, We strategically located the facility along a route along the airport. So it's super close to St. Jude, but also the shuttles that go back and forth. And we're doing a uh, long-term we're getting to a place where they're going to do uh, a significant profit share with them. We got to get profitable first, but once we get there, we're going to do a profit share with these families that are working. So the idea is that at the end of the year, they can get a check that'll make a massive difference on their life. That's amazing. Yeah. The goal is to keep those families together, right? And, and provide an option for parents to not have to go home to work if their job isn't flexible. Yeah, we created that and it's been really amazing watching from kind of the owner's box slash founder's box and not being in the business. Um, But I think I was able to do that because I learned how to do that through AmpCaddy. And I gave up control of that. And then with Eternova, I had to give up a lot of the day-to-day there. So I already started to learn that process when Everly was born. And I just feel fortunate that we've been able to figure out how to get this up and running and actually are making a a true impact on, on families. And it's cool from a brand perspective too. Because from a brand perspective, if you're an e-commerce company and you're selling a product, there's things that compete on, right? Quality, speed, price, experience. And most fulfillment is all based on speed and price. Like that's all it is, speed and price. Like I want to get this product fast to you and for cheap. And while we could do both of those things, the other part is, is that we're, if a consumer ends up unpacking their item that gets shipped to them and they see that this was packed by a family at St. Jude and understand a little bit about the program um, and can tell that, hey, my purchase actually helped the family stay together during pediatric cancer, that it actually is going to create brand loyalty. That person is going to talk about it, potentially you know, want to continue to purchase from that brand. And I don't think that there's another fulfillment center out in the world that does that, that provides that, that level of value to the end consumer. It's really unique. What's incredible about your story, just bringing it back full circle, is that you made it very clear around building the life that you wanted by design. Then life happened to you and you even doubled down almost on that in starting Foreverly Fulfillment and founding this and creating this that's you know going to have tremendous impact for years to come for so many families that it will save them in many ways by keeping them together. Mm-hmm. We could start to wrap up this episode. Are there any bits of gold on living with purpose that we have not covered that you would want our listeners to hear? I feel like we covered a lot. 
<laughs> I feel like a lot. we covered a lot. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to include everything in the show notes, but where can people connect with you? What websites to check out? Things like that. Best way to connect with me is on LinkedIn. I'm really most active there. Uh, so it's just Garrett Ozar um, is my actual like the LinkedIn tag. So I think it's linkedin.com slash whatever Garrett Ozar. You also can go, I have a website that can direct you to um, various companies, but that's the best way. And yeah, I, I just really appreciate you having me on my, on the show and, and allowing me to share the story and, um, you know, just out respect for what you are creating and actually living a purpose-driven life and putting one foot in front of the other and having consistency with continuing on that because most people stop once they don't see that red gumball start to, to drop, right? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that and appreciate you and all the the impactful work you're doing to make the world a better place. I appreciate you too. All the links for this episode can be found in the show notes. If you like Garrett's story, I want to hear from you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Let me know your favorite part. Shoot me a message on Instagram at Dan Lev Goldberg. Finally, if you can please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would mean the world. That's all for today. Thanks for living with purpose today and every day, and I'll see you next time. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at.